All right. If you've got a Bible with you, open it up to the book of Acts, please. We are working through this amazing story of the birth and early years of the Christian church. Acts is the story of a people called out of the world. God calls us out of the world and sends us back into the world. So far, what we're seeing in Acts is really the the foundational stuff, the, the, the first things that need to take place before very soon in Acts, the Christian church explodes out into the Mediterranean region, taking the good news, the gospel of Jesus with them. Yeah. Thanks, kids, for heading downstairs. Sorry about that. Getting things out of order today. All right. So far, what we've seen is uh, the disciples of Jesus, the 120 uh, that were huddled together in that upper room in Jerusalem, fearfully waiting for the promised Holy Spirit, wondering if the authorities were going to come in and arrest them and jail them before that promise came. We saw then the the Holy Spirit of God poured out on them on the day of Pentecost and the the miraculous ability to speak in other languages so they could communicate to the the multitudes of nations that were gathered in Jerusalem at that time. They could share the gospel of Jesus with people from the very places that in the rest of Acts they would be going out to as missionaries, priming the pump locally for people to hear the, the word of God proclaimed in their own hometowns later. We saw how Peter, regular guy, fisherman by trade, three years of being with Jesus, putting his foot in his mouth all the time, stands up in front of the crowd in Jerusalem, preaches his first sermon, and 3,000 people place their faith in Christ for salvation. We saw yesterday how uh, shortly after that, Peter and John, so Peter, Peter, the guy who's the de facto leader of the church at this time, John, as in the guy who wrote the book of John and 1st, 2nd, 3rd John and Revelation, John, the youngest of the disciples, the the one that always refers to himself in the book of John as the, the one whom Jesus loved, like he had this close brotherly friendship with Jesus. John and Peter are walking into the temple And there's this guy begging at what was called the beautiful gate of the temple. And he had been carried there every day of his life and laid at the gate in order to beg for money. We saw how Peter and John stop and engage him in conversation. And through what we're told, through the name of Jesus, they heal this man who had been lame, bad ankles, bad feet, from birth. He jumps up. He's praising God, and the crowds are gathered. Everybody comes together into this this place called Solomon's Portico, and Peter preaches to them his second sermon. We saw that last week. Today we're going to look at at how that was received, the response. So first, I just want to remind you of a couple things from last week. If you've got your Bible, open it to uh, Acts 3, 6 through 8. This is on page 911, if you're looking in one of the Black Pew Bibles. This was the conversation between Peter, John, and the, uh, and the lame guy. Peter said, I have no silver and gold. Right? You're begging for money, but I can't give you anything. But what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. 
And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong, and leaping up, he stood and began to walk, and he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. Thousands of people knew this guy because they've seen him basically every day that they've come to the temple their whole lives. They've seen him sitting there begging, and, and now they, they cannot deny that something miraculous has happened. And, and as they gather together under that area called Solomon's Portico, and as, as, as Peter is preaching to them in this covered hallway just off the, the temple, Peter's probably standing on a box or something and trying to get everybody's attention. And the crowd is a mixture of regular folks who have come to the temple to worship, religious leaders, civic and government leaders. They're all mixed in there. And right in the middle of this sermon, Peter, he doesn't pull any punches. In Acts 3.15, he says this, You killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this, we are witnesses. His sermon wasn't primarily about the lame guy. It was about the who, the power that healed the lame guy. It was in the name of Jesus, in the power and the authority of Jesus that this man is standing there. And so Peter very quickly gets to the point and wants to talk about Jesus in the sermon. He's not afraid to offend people. He's not afraid to pick fights. He wants to declare the truth. How did that end? How was it received? In Acts chapter 4, this is the beginning of our main passage today, we read this, Acts 4, 1. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. So the story takes a significant turn here. This is not the last time that Peter and John are going to find themselves in prison because of what they have said and done in the name of Jesus. This one's actually a pretty mild imprisonment, as we'll see here. It gets a lot harder for them the longer they walk with Jesus. But in this short little section here, there are these three main groups that I want to make sure that we understand. There are the priests. So these are the doers of the religious system. Their primary job was offering sacrifices. So people would bring animals as sacrifices to the Jewish temple, and the priests would, would kill the, the animals in certain prescribed ways, and they would offer certain prayers, and it was that system that had been going on for thousands of years. They were the doers of it, and they were necessary for the Jewish system of worship. Then there's this group, or this guy called the captain of the temple. We could think of him as the captain of the temple guard, this, this special group of security slash police slash military slash religious enforcement officers whose job was it to keep peace at the temple grounds, to balance the, the worldview of the religious, uh, the Jewish religious system, and the, the Roman governing system that was actually over them in authority. These guys served as that go-between. They were constantly trying to balance between how do we, how do we keep order so the Romans aren't going crazy and squashing us. How do we allow things to happen in a nice orderly way at the temple so that everything can be done according to the Old Testament for the the Jewish religious system, and we are always on the lookout for troublemakers who gather a crowd and stir things up. 
And that's what they found right now. Peter and John have gathered a huge crowd. And the temple security forces, the, and the captain of those security forces, he is on edge. And then there's this group that's also named here called the Sadducees. The Sadducees get mentioned a bunch in the New Testament. Usually we kind of pair them with the Pharisees. Now, each would be very offended by that because they were like the, the Republicans and Democrats of the time. They were two competing parties, politically but mostly religiously. And they're actually very similar to our Republican and Democrat parties today. So the, the Pharisees, they were the traditionalists. They were what we would call the conservatives, both politically and religiously. So they looked at the Old Testament, and they said, all of the Old Testament is the authoritative, must-be-followed word of God. We're going to take the law really seriously, and we're not interested in your new ideas. We are going to stick to what is tried and true, what has made our nation and our people great. We have been faithful, sort of, to God for thousands of years, and we will continue to be faithful, sort of, to God as we continue on here, right? So we will follow the law, and if we follow the law, God will be pleased with us. They were legalists. Now, the Sadducees, they were very different. They said, we'll take the first five books, the books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, but we're just going to ignore the rest of the Old Testament. We're, we're going to say that that's not really the authoritative word of God, and we're just going to ignore it. We're going to innovate. We're going to come up with our own ideas. We're going to be progressive in our way of going towards, Christi or going towards the Jewish religious system, politically, socially, all that stuff. We're going to be out on the cutting edge because we have figured things out that previous generations just couldn't understand. In fact, we are so enlightened that we have come to the realization that we are matter only. We are not spirit. And when we die, we die. There's no afterlife. There's no heaven or hell. There's no spiritual eternal life. There's, there's no eternal judgment. None of that stuff matters. It's just what happens now that matters. That was the view of the Sadducees. And just like today, as we look politically in our nation or in our, you know, a location like Virginia, the power tends to shift back and forth in cycles. So sometimes the Pharisees would kind of be in charge and they'd be able to fill the priesthood with their people and the temple guard with their people and they could have the influence and they could make the rules. And sometimes the Sadducees would be in charge. Like at this moment in history, the Sadducees are the, the power brokers in Jerusalem and they can have their people in the priesthood and their people in the temple guard and their theologies were completely different, and it makes a huge difference. They both rejected and hated Jesus, but for different reasons. The Sadducees here are really ticked off because Peter and John are standing there proclaiming the resurrection of the dead. Now, they're talking about Jesus himself rising from the dead, but they're also saying that all who believe in Jesus will have eternal life that death is not the end, that your spirit lives on and you can be in communion with God for all eternity if you will trust in Christ alone for salvation. They hated that message because it went completely against one of their fundamental beliefs that this world is all there is. Matter is the only thing that matters. You die, you die. They cannot allow Peter to gather this crowd and convince people to buy into this system. That is 180 degrees opposed to what they're saying. So they have him arrested. 
This is really different from what we're used to. Can you imagine if I had the power and authority in Versailles to have you arrested because you disagreed with me about a theological thing that we talked about in church? That's what's going on here. The religious leaders in cahoots with the civic authorities don't like what is being taught in a religious context, so they have them arrested, put in jail for the night. A couple years ago, it would have been just completely beyond our ability to imagine such weirdness, right? But the last two years have shown us some examples that kind of point in this direction, right? So you think about our Canadian brothers, how multiple pastors were arrested for having worship services during the COVID-19 lockdown stuff. We think about how uh, helicopters are circling churches with spotlights in Canada in order to shut down. Canada's not that different than us, right? We talk a little funny. About as close as you can get, as far as being a similar country, right? Or the United, uh, the United Kingdom, or Australia, or New Zealand. So same language, sort of, as us. Uh, similar backgrounds for what's important, you know, coming out of a Christian context, what's government supposed to look like. It's not the same, but it's, it's pretty similar. And in each of those countries, even today, there are pastors that are being arrested for trying to hold worship services. They're not that different from us. Or this was a picture from just a year ago last week when that church out in Idaho was singing songs of worship outside and some of their people were arrested. Idaho, one year ago. So we can, we can kind of imagine more of the dynamics that are going on here with Peter and John. So, The authorities are worked up. What about the people? Verse 4. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. So, like, they've they've given up trying to count everybody now. They're just counting the men and, like, grouping households together and all that. So, what are we talking about? 15,000, 20,000 people? How many kids are getting grouped in with this? We have no idea. But today in the United States, if you have a church that reaches 2,000 people, you've officially gathered the name or the label of megachurch. This church is hours old and is already multiple megachurches. Those of you who are organizationally minded, maybe at your job you like manage people and you try to keep things going in the right direction, people in line, imagine the management nightmare of going from 120 to 3,000 to 5,000 plus in just a few days. What do you do with all these people? And the authorities recognize the volatility of that situation. We have to squash this now. If we don't squash this, Rome is going to squash it for us and probably squash us in the process. Verse 5. On the next day, the rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. Now, if you have read through the New Testament multiple times, you may recognize some of these names, Annas and Caiaphas. So Caiaphas is actually the high priest at this moment in history. But Annas is referred to as the high priest. What's going on there? Caiaphas is the guy that 
you know, he was involved with the trial of Jesus just weeks before this. What's up with Annas? So Annas is the father-in-law of Caiaphas, and he was the high priest before Caiaphas. And the fact that Annas is labeled as the high priest in here, I figure it means one of two things. Maybe Annas is really the guy in charge. That wouldn't be too hard to to figure out. He's the father-in-law, right? So maybe he's really the one that is in charge, and Caiaphas is kind of the junior high priest at this point. Or it could just be as simple as what we do today. Somebody of a particular important position is no longer in that position, but they keep the title. A former president walks in and wants to worship with us, we would refer to him as Mr. President, right? Even though he's not currently the president. That might be what's happening here too. But you've got these guys, Annas, Caiaphas, John and Alexander. John himself would become high priest just a few years after that. This is a different John, not our John. They're all together, and they are they're constituting with all those elders and scribes and everybody, they're constituting what is called the Sanhedrin. And so I've got a picture for you that I want to show up here. The Sanhedrin was 70 leaders, both religious and civic leaders, plus the high priest. So the high priest is off there in the middle. And these guys have a particular chamber inside the temple complex. We actually know where it is. And uh, they would sit in the semicircle, and the person that they were questioning, the accused person, would have to stand or sit in the midst, in the middle of that semicircle. It's designed to be an intimidation. These are, these are the, the locally recognized but then entrusted with authority leaders of the Jewish nation. And Peter and John are going to be called before them and sat or stood in the middle of that semicircle with all of them staring down at them in order to intimidate and question them. That's what's happening here. Peter and John are supposed to be shaken in their boots at this point. Verse 7. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? How dare you heal this man? How did you do it? That's what they're asking. Where do you get off teaching the people after you did this? How, how dare you claim to heal this man and do it in the name of a executed, convicted criminal? What's wrong with you, you little commoners? You don't have a right to do this, they say. You have no standing. You have no authority. You're not in charge here. You're supposed to answer to us. So answer us. By whose name? Whose authority did you do this? Peter's going to tell them. They're not going to like what he has to say. Verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? Comma, we'll just pause right there. It's like, he's asking a question, and yet he's, he's shaming them. He's accusing them. He's like, are you really putting us on trial for doing a good deed to a man who has been crippled since birth? Are we standing before you asking questions because this man, we'll call him Bob, who has been lame for 40 plus years, is now able to leap and jump and praise God for his healing? Is that why we're here, guys? 
You see the redness going up in the faces, especially of Caiaphas, Annas, the others in charge. He's saying, basically, who who do you think you are to put us on trial for this? Verse 10. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, jabs him. You know that, right? Whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. Now, if you're taking notes, just write 1 Peter in there. And then later today, you can go read the short book of 1 Peter in the New Testament, where Peter picks up this same theme of the idea of the stone being rejected and turned into the cornerstone for the building of his new church. It's, it's all in there. So he says, let it, let it be known to everybody, all right? Such boldness. Not just you guys in this room, but as soon as I step out of this room, I'm going to tell everybody again, it is in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth that this man is healed. You know, Jesus, the guy that you guys killed, but God the Father raised from the dead. It is his power, his authority, it's his name that this has happened. Now, the way that Peter phrases this, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, that seems normal to us if we've been around church for a while, but this would have been extraordinary to the people that are listening. They get Jesus first name. Makes sense, right? We kind of get the, the whole, we'll call it a last name, of Nazareth, right? So this is where Jesus grew up. And honestly, that's not a badge that he would be proud of or that anybody would be proud of. Nazareth was this little nowhere town, this little hillbilly up in the hills of, of uh, Galilee region. And like when Nathaniel heard about Jesus being a Nazarene, he said, can anything good come from Nazareth? It's not an impressive place, right? Yet that's the title that gets stuck on the end here. But it's that middle name, we would say, that Christ, Jesus Christ. So when, when Peter calls Jesus the Christ, he's using that Greek word Christ, which is the same as the Hebrew word Messiah, the, the anointed one, the promised Messiah, the one who was prophesied for thousands of years, the rescuer, the deliverer, the one who would come to save his people. He's saying that, that has happened. His name is Jesus, so I'm going to give him the title of Christ, Jesus the Christ, and he happens to be from Nowheresville, Nazareth. That's what he's saying right there. And when he does that, he's saying to these 71 guys in the circle, you think you're hot shots. You think you're big stuff. But I know the one who is the promised Messiah, who ranks so far above you. you know, he, Minutes or days, or minutes or hours before that, he had said, You killed the author of life. That author of life, that one through whom everything was created, that is Jesus. You guys don't scare me. I serve the author of life. Now, when he refers to Jesus as Christ, he believes it. He's full of the Spirit. He's full of boldness. He's, if he's shaken, he's probably hiding it as best as he can. But I know that he's confident in this. And I, am, I would be willing to bet that he's thinking back to the first time that he referred to Jesus as the Christ. This was one of the high points of Peter's life early on. This is in Matthew 16, verses 13 through 18. And if you're looking at a pew Bible, it's on 822. 
Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? That was Jesus' favorite label for himself. And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah. So people are saying you are a reincarnated, resurrected prophet. Others, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? And now they're calling, looks like staring at each other, like, I don't want to be the first one to answer. Peter, of course, is the first one to answer. Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, that just means son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. God the Father has revealed this to you directly, Peter, is what he's saying. You didn't get it because you're so smart. You got it because God revealed it to you. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. We've looked at this passage many times. You guys probably remember the arguments. He's not saying that I'm going to build this church on Peter, but on the confession of Peter. That Peter says, Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And on that, Jesus promises to build his church. Not, not a building, not a bunch of buildings, a group of people called the church. He's going to build that group on the confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter remembers that so clearly in his mind. Now he's standing, watching it happen. Through the proclamation of the gospel out of his own previously very unreliable mouth. Just amazing. He's seen the church built on the foundation of the confession of Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. Back to Acts. Peter's going to go on. He's going to up the stakes a little bit more. So he said, it's by the name of Jesus that this man is healed, the Jesus whom you killed. God the Father rose from the dead. Verse 12. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, Peter, he is just, he's rocking it here. He is on a roll. He's not going to back down. He's going for broke. He's already made him really mad. He might as well get the most important thing out there, even if it's going to make them matter. Just like in our society today, nobody is particularly offended if you say, Jesus changed my life. I was a mess, and now things are better because I met Jesus, your Savior. Or you could say, Jesus improves your life. He makes you a better person. He, he helps you to be a better husband and father or wife and mother or child or worker or whatever. Jesus is that magic extra ingredient that you can put on like the, uh, the bomb at rapid fire when you put on your pizza. Right? He makes everything better. That's not offensive. But Peter doesn't say that. Peter didn't even say, Jesus is the way that I got saved. Jesus is the way that I found peace and purpose in life. He doesn't even say that. He says very exclusively, very very narrowly, he says, there is salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. He's saying there's there's no other way to reconciliation with God. There's lots of prophets, religions, 
philosophers, ideas. And simple fisherman Peter is saying, there's only one true way. Now, he didn't make this up. He heard this directly from Jesus. In John chapter 14, 6, Jesus, just weeks before this particular time, Jesus is with his disciples, and he says to them, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. We live in a society where that is offensive. Even if you say it in the nicest possible way, that is offensive. Because it's saying Jesus is the only way, all other ways are invalid. But if this is true, we must stand on it. Do you believe it's true? Are you, are you hoping that maybe God grades on, grades on a curve and oh, maybe he'll just let everybody in? heard a pastor just a week and a half ago clearly proclaim multiple times in a sermon that everybody gets to heaven. doesn't matter what you believe. Everybody gets to heaven. The man has not been reading his Bible. He's forgotten the words of Jesus and the words of Peter. Verse 13. How do they respond? Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. They recognized that they had been with Jesus. I love this verse. I love this verse. Peter says his stuff. It's it's only a couple minutes long as it's recorded for us. He says his stuff. And the, the elites of the elites... The rulers of the rulers, the ones who are there to put them on trial, they are astonished. You can see their mouths hanging open. Maybe they're drooling out of the corner a little bit too. What is going on here? And we're told that they perceived rightly that these are uneducated common men. Everybody in the room, they are the elite smarty pants. They've gone to the right schools. They've got the right scholarships, the right fellowships. They are the smartest of the smartest. These two commoners... What is with them? How can they speak this way? How, how can they be so pers- persuasive? And the answer is, they recognized that they had been with Jesus. They didn't go off and cram and get a bachelor's or master's degree and then start preaching. They were with Jesus. Do you, do you belong to Jesus? Have you been with him? Has he saved you? It doesn't matter how smart you are, how eloquent you are, how educated you are. The Spirit of God is living inside of you if you belong to Jesus, just like he's living inside of Peter. And you can be this bold of a witness also. Maybe you stutter. Like like Every Sunday I preach to you guys, there's at least half a dozen times where I'm stumbling over my words. My tongue gets all tied up doesn't matter to God. He can work through Moses, who was a chronic stutterer. What are your weaknesses? What are the things that keep you from being a bold witness for Jesus? Being with Jesus can overcome all of that. 
Verse 14. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. They're stuck. Here's the guy himself. Everybody knows it. He's been healed. We cannot deny it unless he's been faking it for 40 years. He has been healed. What are we going to do? But when they had commanded them to leave the council, get out of here, we're going to talk amongst yourselves, they conferred with one another saying, what shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. Imagine, imagine if Owen made it to 40 years old. And in, in the blink of an eye, he's able to sit up, which he can't even do by himself, stand, walk, talk, eat, use the bathroom, all these things that he could never do his whole life for 40 years, and suddenly he can do it. That would be really hard to ignore, right? That's what's happening. What are you going to do about it? These guys are stuck. 17. But in order that it may not spread, that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and they charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. And we look at that and we think, what? What is it about this situation that they think that's going to work? I mean, come on. These guys are not intimidated by you. You're going to have to come up with something better than that. Just don't teach in the name of Jesus or else. Not going to work. Of course, it didn't work. Peter, verse 19 of Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. I love how they put this. It's like, it's not up to us, guys. We can't help it. We have to speak of what we have seen and heard. We are compelled. We must tell others about Jesus. And you guys have to judge them. Is it right for us to obey God or to obey you? They rightly perceive that that these, these men understand God has given governing authorities as a gift. And so Romans chapter 13 makes that really clear to us today. That we are, we are to look at those in governance over us as a gift appointed by God for our good, for the good of the, the nation or the community that we're talking about. And we are to submit to them. We are to honor them. We are to obey them. And yet sometimes those in governing authorities are in contradiction or they are the opposite of what the will of God is and in those cases like in this situation you have to make a choice if God says this and the governing authorities whom God has told you to obey say the opposite you have to make a choice will you obey God or will you obey the governing authorities and Peter and John they just lay that back at the feet of the Sanhedrin and say we've made our choice you guys decide if it's right or not for us to obey you losers or to obey God. Even in those last few words, they're, it's like they're, they're picking a fight with them. Just boldly laying it out there. We can't help it. We must obey God, and we must tell people about this. We can either obey you, the rulers, or we can obey the ruler of all, and we're going to choose the ruler of all to obey. Verse 21. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. 
for the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Peter and John are going to find other times to spend time in prison. They're going to be beaten. In the case of Peter, he's going to end up crucified for his faith. John's going to live out his years in exile on an island in the Mediterranean. They're going to have hardship. But for right now, the authorities' hands are tied. They don't know what else to do. Threaten them, they're going to let them go. Because there are thousands of people outside the room dancing and praising God right now for the healing of this man. Luke throws in the detail that he was more than 40 years old. So, is this just an interesting story, or does this somehow apply to us today? Here's the way I think it most directly applies to us. You'll, you'll find this as the title of the sermon. Common people, regular people like us, right? Maybe you're one of the more impressive people in the room. Maybe you're one of the least impressive people in the room. doesn't matter. Common people plus a great Savior equals a bold witness. It's not smart people plus the right planning and the PR work and the good stage and the lighting and the sound system equals a bold witness. It's not that it's common people plus a great Savior equals a bold witness. Now, it doesn't, it doesn't have to. It can equal a bold witness. You have the choice of whether or not to be bold in your witness with Jesus. But the thing that allows you to be bold is, have you been with Jesus? Go back to that verse 13. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Are you willing for that to be true of you too? The end of your life, people are gathered celebrating your life. Could they say of you, he or she was a bold witness for Jesus? And I knew him in high school. He wasn't that impressive. But man, he was with Jesus. He transformed him. Jesus turned him into a bold witness for him. And even when he was outclassed and he was talking with people who had these great arguments, he was bold for Jesus. When the, when the world went crazy and, and our government told us we're not allowed to say certain things, he stood boldly and he proclaimed the truth of Jesus. When it cost him relationships, when his family was splitting apart because of his bold witness for Jesus, he, he was never a jerk about it, but he never backed down. He I know that this is true, and I refuse to be silent, and I refuse to lie. The only way that's possible for us is if we've been with Jesus, that he's transformed us, that we are a different person. We see that in the life of Peter. We see that in the life of a lot of people in this room. If that's not true of you, let me encourage you. It can be true of you. You can be, first, you can be saved by Jesus, by grace, through faith alone, not by your own impressiveness, by your own good work or your last name or anything like that. It's just by grace, through faith alone. And then being with Jesus, 
reading the New Testament, communing with him in prayer, walking with him in obedience, transforms you into somebody that can look a lot like Peter. Not in your own power. Power of Jesus. The infilling of the Holy Spirit at work in you. And ultimately, it's about the sovereignty of God over your life. If you are going to be a bold witness at the risk of reputation or relationship or your job or whatever else it is you risk, it's good to remember that God is sovereign over everything. That he gave you that relationship, that family, that job, that school situation, all he gave that all to you. And he's with you as you risk it to be a bold witness for him. We're going to close out the service by singing Sovereign Over Us. We're going to take a couple minutes to reflect on what we read and learned today, prepare ourselves for communion. And what I'd ask you to do is spend this time in prayer, reflecting on your, your status as a son or daughter of the king of the universe, the one who is sovereign over it all. Are you willing to trust that sovereign king so that you can be a bold witness of the truth of Jesus Christ? Let me pray for us. Father, as we come and get ready to take communion, we are we're thankful for the way that you invite us into relationship, that you, you don't hold us at arm's length, but you, you open wide your arms for us, you welcome us home to you. And yet we have to come through that very narrow gate that Jesus is the only way. But some of us in this room, we want to buck against that. We want to hope that that's not true and that there are other ways to you. So Lord, I pray for them as they have this time of reflection, Lord, would you help them to see the truth? The fact that Jesus is the only way is exclusive and narrow and all that, but it is great news because there is a way. And the way makes sense. The way is not just you setting aside all of your standards in order to welcome in a rebellious people who are unrepentant and unchanged, but the, instead you make a way for us to be transformed that we might be acceptable to you. Lord, as we think about communing with you now, communion with you in our regular lives, would you help us to be like Peter and John? Would you help us to be more bold? Would you uh, transform us like you did them, that we could be bold witnesses, that you are our great Savior?